Hey, science nerds. Welcome to Beyond the Abstract, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of the coolest cutting edge basic science research papers in a way that just about anyone can understand. Welcome to episode four of Beyond the Abstract. Today I'm really excited to share our guest. His name is John and he's a little bit of a unique guest compared to the our previous guest because he's the first author of the paper that we'll be discussing today. John, do you want to introduce yourself and give a little bit of background on sort of your training path up to this point? I want to start by saying also that it's John Welsh, comma, PhD. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We have a real scientist in our midst, not the uh, trash that was with us before. Just kidding, guys. We love you. <laughs> That's right. So I'll only respond to doctor <laughs> the rest of this time. Uh, sure. So my background is I uh, did my undergraduate at Virginia Tech, got a degree in biology, uh, stayed there to do a master's in cell biology. Then I went to Los Alamos National Lab to do a post-master's fellowship where I did something completely different and worked on biofuels for 14 months, the lost years. Uh, and then I came back to Penn to do my PhD in uh, biophysics. And then I stayed on at Penn to do a fellowship here with Mark Kahn, uh, who's the corresponding author on, on this work. And so it was during that fellowship that I did this, this paper. I also happen to be in Mark's lab. So John and I know each other very, very well. We have this thing where it's like, oh, ballet versus classical music. And he's very anti-classical music. I'm very mm. pro-classical music. And I was, I like thought I hated the ballet, but then I actually went and um, I love it. It's like really good. Yeah, you get the benefits of a classical music concert plus dancing. If you want the classical music, just close your eyes at the ballet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Accessible for everyone. We're super excited to have John with us. But uh, in terms of life updates, I have to tell you guys, I have mice. They're getting back at you because you shit talked mice on the podcast. That's before, so true. They listened in. They were probably one of the like 15 people who listened to the first episode. <laughs> and they're like, we, we got to get back at this guy. So yeah, my kitchen is currently like basically a death trap because we have so many traps around. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, I guess. That's another exciting <laughs> update. What are you thankful for, Ellen? I am thankful for my wonderful podcast co-host. All right. Don't need to say it so, like, with gritted teeth. What about you, John? What are you thankful for? I'm thankful for... Um, no longer having to pipette. <laughs> yeah, right. Being out of the lab. That's wonderful. So as you can see, John really enjoys doing research. <laughs> the thrill of pipetting small volumes into even more small volumes really gets us going. So difficult you need a PhD to do <laughs> Okay, so we can um, get a little bit into the paper. The title of the paper is Hemodynamic Regulation of Perivalvular Endothelial Gene Expression Prevents Deep Venous Thrombosis. So again, John is the first author, and it's coming from the Kahn Lab at the University of Pennsylvania, and it was published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation just in this past November of 2019. So this is like really hot off the press. That's right. Although some of the data might be up to four years old. <laughs> That's science for you, baby. <laughs> it's been sitting on the press for a while, so that's okay. 
just to give a little bit of background so we can better understand the paper, I just wanted to give a pretty simple introduction into the actual venous system and the function of venous valves. So we've talked about the heart before on this podcast. We talk about it as a pump. So obviously it has to pump blood to the rest of the body. This blood has to be returned back to the heart. So the veins are what actually bring the blood back towards the heart. And this blood is usually oxygen poor because the oxygen has been spread to the tissues. And then the blood that's returned to the heart is pumped back to the lungs again so that um, it can get more oxygen. And then in the title, they use the term endothelial cells. And these are the cells that are actually lining our blood vessels. And these cells are really important because they are able to regulate that the vessels function properly. And then another focus of this paper are the actual valves in the veins. If John wanted to talk a little bit about how these valves function. Sure. So as you said, the veins are on the opposite side of the vascular system from the heart. They're helping to collect all this blood that's been pumped out. And so the return of the venous blood from, say, your feet back up to your heart is a bit slower. You don't have the heart pumping it. Mm -hmm. um, it's going against gravity. So at particular sites, especially in you know your legs and branch points where the flow can get a little bit less efficient, valves will develop. And these valves actually develop after birth in the venous system and are uh, basically shaped like a shirt pocket. So you'll have kind of two shirt pockets in a, in a tube. And so when the flow is kind of pushing them, it's like they're getting pushed against your chest. They lay flat against the wall. But then if the flow starts to reverse, they balloon open and catch that blood and preventing it from flowing back to your toes so that when the pressure changes again, you'll be ready for, for more efficient forward flow. So it's really just fixing a plumbing problem. Yeah, it's really just making sure that the blood goes in one direction. I also kind of want to emphasize, so our lab studies endothelial cells in a lot of different contexts. And endothelial cells, like Ellen said, are the cells that line the blood vessels. So they're really in direct contact with the blood. Of course, they will have like a really important role in also regulating what's going on in the blood since they're in direct contact with it. One clinical problem that we see directly related to these veins and their valves is something called deep vein thrombosis, which we'll just refer to as DVTs from here on out. So DVTs are clots that occur in the veins, and this prevents blood flow and blood flow return back to the heart. So it's just like if you would clog up your kitchen drain, there's going to be a problem with getting water through that clog. And one really important risk factor that's important both clinically and in this paper is that DVTs often develop after long periods of immobility. And we kind of think of this as blood being stagnant, not being able to move properly, and that causes the clots to develop. And one of the, like, the really bad things about DVTs especially, DVTs in themselves are pretty bad in that they can cause swelling locally. Usually they're in your leg, so your leg can get red and swollen, but What's really dangerous about them is when the clot dislodges, and it can go all the way to your lungs and cause something that we call a pulmonary embolism. And depending on, on how big this clot is, it can actually be fatal. Exactly, because you're disrupting the blood flow through the lungs, which as we were discussing is really important for getting oxygen back into the blood. Mm -hmm. And there's been previous research that's been done that shows there's actually a specific place in the venous system where DVTs are more likely to form. Sure, it's, it's you know really pretty interesting because DVTs happen in all manner of people. It's kind of considered like almost a secondary event for a lot of people in the hospital. And no matter what their primary reason for being in the hospital is, 
they always seem to form these clots in the same places. And that's actually kind of within the sinus of these venous valves, usually in the leg. Um, and so this is, you know, again, if we go back to the shirt pocket analogy, it's kind of within the pocket itself that these clots form, um, where there's kind of poor blood flow and things can get trapped. And so kind of the thought is something happens in this area and the clot kind of grows out from this. Mm. Um, this was actually a mystery for a long time. And then in the 60s and 70s, they start, were doing, actually doing autopsy studies and going through people who died of pulmonary embolism and finding out where these clots had originated. And, and essentially, you know, unless someone had an actual injury, the vast majority of these clots will, will form in these little pockets and then grow out from there to, to large sizes. Wow. I feel like that's, I wonder how they discovered it, right? Because you're like, oh, they died from something in their lungs. Let's look in their leg yeah. and see if there's a clot there. Yeah, it must have been random. like people who are curious about anatomy back in the day, just looking wherever they could. Because yeah, typically you wouldn't be like, oh, lung injury, let's look in the deep veins of the leg. Yeah, I can certainly say that Ellen and I would have never discovered it because we uncovered our body probably a total of like four times in medical school in anatomy. <laughs> yeah, we were not very enthusiastic dissectors, that is for sure. Also not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and neither of us are going into surgery or orthopedics, so that, oh shoot, Derek, sorry. <laughs> Derek's going into OBGYN. <laughs> it's okay, it's just a C-section. <laughs> and one other important part of background I wanted to emphasize is that in our bodies, there's a constant balance of pro-clotting and anti-clotting factors. So another clinical word for a clot is a thrombus. So we think of these factors either pro-thrombotic or pro-clotting versus anti-thrombotic, um, anti-clotting. And this is what prevents our veins from clotting up on a day-to-day -day basis. So obviously forming a clot is really important because you don't want to bleed out anytime you have an injury site and any leak of blood from your arteries or veins. But then the body also needs a way to actually break down the clot. And that's where these anti-clotting factors come in. There are actually a lot of diseases um, that occur because of this imbalance in clotting. Either people who have too much of pro-clotting factors, and these people are especially prone to getting DVTs and mm -hmm. other sorts of blood clots, and people who actually don't have enough of these clotting factors. And these people are more prone to bleeding out when they get injured in some sort of way, or even after simple things like tooth extractions. Yeah. Um, so the question that John and the rest of the group asked in the paper is, what are the molecular mechanisms by which immobility causes formation of DVTs? So John, I'm actually curious why you decided to choose this topic specifically. Sure. So, you know, as you said before, Mark's lab has history of studying endothelial cells, and particularly valves. And I came from a lab that uh, focused on blood clot formation. So kind of a natural marriage between trying to understand blood clotting in the context of valves, mm -hmm. where there's this classic connection between the valve sinus, the endothelium there, and these DVTs. And, and kind of interestingly, in the world of thrombosis and blood clotting is, you know, all these other classic blood clotting disorders, heart attacks and stroke, usually with a clot forms because there's a plaque, uh, mm -hmm. some disturbance in the vessel wall, mm -hmm. or someone forms clots after a traumatic injury because there's all this vessel damage. But DVTs form on intact, otherwise healthy endothelium. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the only thrombosis event that forms in this. So it's kind of a, a really interesting question to us was kind of what the heck is going on there that these endothelium have, have turned in such a way that now on an intact endothelium that's normally supposed to be tamping down the clotting response, now they're supporting it um, and at this particular site in the valve sign. So a lot of interesting kind of open questions there. 
So one of the first questions that you guys asked in the paper is asking if there's a way that the body normally prevents clot formation at these valve sinus areas where we said that you're more likely to develop a clot. And then what makes this valve endothelium different from the rest of the endothelium throughout the entirety of the vein? So the first thing was that you looked at expression of specific pro-clotting and anti-clotting factors in different regions of the vein and valvular areas in mice. And you saw that around the valve, there's actually a higher concentration of anti-clotting factors. But then in the areas distal from the valve or further away from the valve, there's higher concentrations of pro-clotting factors. So this ensures that there won't be clots right around the valve. This was first done in mouse samples, and then you looked at human samples and saw the same pattern of expression. And we had actually were following on top of a study that had first identified this same pattern in humans maybe 10 years ago, um, the Beauville group out of Vermont. And, you know, they kind of just observed this in some human samples, didn't really know what to do with it. They just thought it was interesting. And this add, just added another layer of complexity to the question of the clots only form in this section. There's no plaque or otherwise injury. Mm-hmm. And these endothelial cells at the starting point are very resistant to clot even more than everywhere else in the vasculature. So it was even more paradoxical as to that this is the site of this common clotting disease. Right. Like there must be something, this is the place that is most prone to clotting, yet it's not really clotting um, like on a daily basis what's actually going on. There must be something that's different about this area, right? Right. And that this antithrombotic valve sinus endothelium is seen in both in humans and mice was also interesting because it suggests that it's something that's important to are functioning as living beings, then it's conserved kind of up the evolutionary chain. Mm-hmm. From potato to <laughs> mouse to human. <laughs> so as sort of a proof of concept, the next step was deleting the anti-clotting factors in the, the area around the valve. And when you deleted these anti-clotting factors, you saw that there was actually a greater amount of clot formation in the area of the valve sinus in your mouse models. These must have been like teeny tiny clots, right? They were very, we call them microthrombi in the paper, and it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> other people study blood clots, they'll tie off the IVC, this giant vein in the mouse, and, and they get these giant blood clots, and then I come along with microthrombi. And <laughs> it's just not a, it's not a good look at the conference. Size queens in the uh, thrombosis field as well, they're everywhere. There's no shame in adding micro as a prefix to anything. <laughs> so... Do we know why these valves have this anti-clotting profile? Like we were saying that these valves are like really different, but what, you know, causes them to be different? What regulates them in expressing all of these anti-clotting factors? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the next step was doing exactly what you're asking is seeing like what causes this upregulation of anti-clotting factors. And because The blood, like Derek was mentioning, the blood is in direct contact with this endothelium that lines the veins and the valves. They wanted to see if there's something about the blood itself that actually regulates the anti-clotting factors. And your guys' hypothesis was that it's actually um, the force exerted by the blood flow that affects the expression. Right. The formation of these valves is driven by the endothelial cells sensing changes in flow right after childbirth and stimulating the endothelium to convert into these valves. Mm. So we know that these cells are are very responsive to changes in flow. So we thought maybe there was a connection between the flow at these sites, particularly in the sinus, compared to the rest of the flow. And, and, you know, 
there's the concept of laminar flow, which is kind of smooth flow where everything's going along that's streamlined. And then um, there's oscillatory flow, which is where flow will kind of oscillate from being forward flow to being reversing flow. It's a little bit more complex. And then that oscillatory flow is what simulates valve formation. We thought that mm. maybe if this flow is still happening in that sinus where you have these leaflets kind of sticking out into the flow and causing more turbulent fields behind the valve in the sinus, that this could then be playing a role to signal to these endothelial cells to be more antithrombotic. I think that's a really cool idea too, that these cells are really dynamic and they're sensing the environment around them. I think sometimes we just think of your veins and your arteries as just tubes mm -hmm. through which blood flows through, but they're always actively sensing what's going on and adapting to that. So to test if it's actually this force of blood flow that regulates um, the pro versus anti-clotting profile, the next experiment was to reduce the blood flow and see how this affects the expression of antithrombotic factors. The way this was done experimentally was by ligating a mouse vein to reduce the blood flow. Um, so this is like a tiny little mouse surgery. And then to look at, to see if there was a reduction in anti-clotting factors at the site of the valve. John, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like doing these surgeries? I feel like I've seen you like in the room next to us and you're just like there with your like tiny whatever sutures and whatever, <laughs> but I've actually never seen one before. Sure. So it's um, becomes much more serious when you actually want the animals to survive. You know, I think a lot of scientists mm -hmm. will harvest tissue, but when you want the animal to wake up and, and live for a bit longer, you need to kind of do a lot more procedures, get a lot more training. Uh, it was a, a little bit of an arduous task, but, you know, you, <laughs> but yeah, so, so, you know, you do all the same things that you would for a human surgery, you put the mouse under anesthesia, uh, you create, um, you know, you shave the hair or you use nair on mice, which is yeah. not sponsored. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you get rid of the hair, you know, you put iodine down to make it a sterile field. You, you'll actually like drape the mouse, but using pre glad press and seal. Uh, uh, <laughs> Also not sponsored. <laughs> well, Kitchenware. And you'll kind of make a hole through the gladware to, to expose the surgical site. And you, you, you try and do as small of a site as you can. So I would make, you know, maybe a three millimeter cut in the skin and just kind of like spread that open to get down to the, the vessels that we were going to tie off. Mm. Um, and then, you know, throw one or two sutures in there at the end. Give the mouse some local anesthesia where you actually did the incision. You give them an injection to kind of be long lasting painkiller after you take them off the anesthesia I and mean, they get some really nice care <laughs> <laughs> only only the best for the patients of pen medicine right. the mouse life is worth pen medicine <laughs> so a very involved process but it worked out well because you did see that reducing the blood flow um, by ligating these veins did cause a reduction in the anti-clotting factors near the valves and at the same time you actually saw increased pro-clotting factors at the same site near the valve that's right. It was really interesting. You know, you kind of saw these valve endothelial cells that were quite unique in their genetic profile in just 72 hours transform to look like the endothelial cells everywhere else, which made them more pro-clotting. Um, and this is interesting that it happened in just a few days because we even started to see some changes even earlier than that mm. because this kind of matches the clinical timeline of people coming to a hospital, being immobilized for a couple of days, and then starting to form these clots. Um, so it kind of made some sense in the clinical way that this disease occurs. You know, we were talking a little bit about the human clinical picture of DVTs. 
how does all of this tie into what's going on in the human disease? Yeah, so an important thing is connecting the risk factor for DVTs, immobility, to these changes in blood flow, whether it's the laminar or the turbulent blood flow, which we said is important for regulating these anti-clotting factors. So the next part of the paper wanted to look at how muscle contraction in the leg actually affects the type of blood flow near the valve. John, is there a reason you wanted to look at muscle contraction? Well, that was a tie to immobility, with the idea being that if someone is having muscle contractions, that simulates what's happening when you're actually up and walking around. Right. Um, and, you know, we're doing this with a vascular ultrasound, so we do have to have the patients or subjects that we were imaging be rather still, so we just would have them kind of curl their toe or kind of flex their foot to simulate active movement, but while we could still measure blood flow that was going on. Mm. So just restate the experiment you're actually doing ultrasound to look at these valvular areas in the vein in patients who are either immobile, so I'm assuming legs up on the bed not moving, compared to patients that are doing this muscle contraction, which like you said, is just a simple toe curl, which is enough that you can still contract the muscle and affect the blood flow in the valve, but allows you to still keep the ultrasound on the patient and actually look at the type of blood flow. Exactly. Yeah, and the idea with immobility and muscle contraction too is that when you're on a long plane ride or you're on a long car ride, your legs are just there and your muscles aren't actually actively at work. And muscle contractions are an important way to move blood forward too in uh, the veins. Contraction, the pushing of the muscle, also moves blood forward and helps the valves close. So the result from your ultrasound experiment showed that in the patients who were doing the toe curl or muscle contraction, you were able to detect this turbulent flow that we were talking about, um, this sort of like whirlpool of blood that happens at the venous valves, but you didn't see this type of turbulent flow in immobile patients. And then you wanted to compare how this um, toe curl muscle contraction compares to the standard of care. And the standard of care for patients in hospitals are called compression devices, um, spontaneous compression devices or intermittent compression devices. And these sort of just kind of like clamp down on the patient's leg. And this is thought to prevent the formation of DVTs by helping the blood flow through the veins. But in your ultrasound experiment, when you tested patients who were wearing these compression devices, you did not see the same type of turbulent flow near the valve that you saw with muscle contraction. That's right. So, you know, if the person is just kind of laying there simulating mobility, your blood flow is a little bit kind of pulsatile as the pressures change, as, you know, the arterial flow changes and feeds the veins. Um, and when the sequential compression devices would squeeze the patient's leg and kind of compress your veins to drive flow forward, um, we saw kind of the steady increase in flow, but the flow just kind of went around the valves, almost like, you know, jumping over it like a ramp, and nothing really happened back in the sinus. This is very consistent. We imaged a bunch of people and kind of saw this very consistently. Um, but if we had someone do kind of a, a muscle action to get this contraction going and simulate mobility, we would see a burst of flow and also this really strong recirculatory flow of kind of the flow coming around that valve leaflet and circulating in the sinus and, and creating kind of more of an oscillatory profile. And this is like kind of big, yeah, right? 
Ellen, like how many patients have you seen with compression devices on the wards? So many, so many patients. I would say at least 50% of the hospitalized patients I saw in inpatient medicine would wear these devices. Right. And it's kind of a big deal then if they don't really work. work. Right, John? Yeah. And there was actually a study in the New England Journal of Medicine in April of this year that looked at the use of these devices in, in ICU patients. They had 2,000 patients. Half of them got their standard of care with the compression devices, and half of them got the standard of care without the compression devices. And basically, they saw no change in the rate of DVT across these two groups. And both groups had a very, you know, it was about 10% of the patients would get a DVT. So it was a pretty significant event rate. Yeah. It's a big conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my last question for you, Ellen, is then if we know that muscle contraction stimulates blood flow behind the valves, then do we see the same changes in clotting and anti-clotting factors in this region as well? Yeah, I think a really good tie-in, the last part of the data from the paper that we'll discuss, is that you see these changes in pro-clotting and anti-clotting factors in patients who did develop DVT. So there's this dysregulation of um, anti-clotting factors that is typically found in the heart valves. The final part of the paper is looking at two patients who actually died from a DVT and subsequent pulmonary embolism. And you're able to isolate their venous valves and look at the balance of pro-clotting and anti-clotting factors. And in these two patients, you actually saw near the valves where the DVT was found, that they had higher levels of pro-clotting factors and lower levels of anti-clotting factors compared to veins from the very same patient that did not have the DVT. Right, so it was really the exact same pattern we saw in the genetic expression when we did the deletion experiments in the mice, when we did the flow disruption in the mice, we saw the exact same pattern at the disease site in the humans. So it's kind of suggestive that this might not be a totally off the wall. <laughs> that the science is real. <laughs> Always a good way to conclude your paper. <laughs> so it sounds like this paper had a lot of really important findings and implications, especially for DVTs. First of all, it shows that the valve has special anti-clotting endothelial cells, and they're special in the sense that they experience a different type of flow. And this different flow allows them to secrete anti-clotting factors to prevent clots from forming. And we show that deletion of these flow-dependent regulators or reducing the blood flow as we did in the artery ligation experiment by uh, tying off the artery, that this increases clotting factors by the valve and creates these microclots. Um, and maybe nanoclots. <laughs> and then lastly, that the lack of muscle contraction in human decreases blood flow behind the valves where clots tend to form, and patients with DVTs in this region have higher expression of clotting factors. So John, I want to ask you, where do you see this work going um, in the future? So one interesting uh, direction to go from here is is in understanding that this paper really only brings our understanding of DVT formation up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. You know, we can show that uh, possibly before DVT forms that the endothelium undergo this change where they become more prothrombotic, but we don't really understand what causes the clot to actually begin forming beyond that. Mm. 
um, whether it's some kind of immune response or, or some other event that occurs to trigger the clot formation, uh, is still, I think, needs some more basic science research. Um, but what we do know is that this oscillatory flow might be helpful in preventing clots from forming. So, mm -hmm. so the other direction is to actually go in a translational direction, translating from the bench top to the bedside, as the old saying goes, <laughs> and actually create a device that can recapitulate this flow to prevent these clots from forming in, in high-risk patients. Yeah, and we touched on this a little bit, but DVTs, I really can't emphasize just how big of a deal DVTs are in the hospital. They're really common. More than 1% of hospitalized patients experience DVTs every year. And if you think about the extreme high volume of patients that a lot of hospitals have, that's a lot, a lot of people. Yeah. And John, you were even saying in this New England Journal study that up to like 10% of them experience DVTs, right? That was specifically to medical ICU patients who are at a higher risk than mm -hmm. the general population. But yes, mm -hmm. because they're mobile. Right. There's several populations, you know, people after they've had a traumatic injury, people after surgery, uh, after stroke. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're talking about rates that can be anywhere between, you know, five to 10%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then DBTs by themselves are already a big deal. And they can be fairly painful if they develop in your leg. But the big thing that we're worried about is pulmonary embolism when the clot travels to your lungs. And Pulmonary embolism is actually the third most common cause of cardiovascular death after heart attack and stroke. And again, the risk factors we think about for forming DVTs are immobility. So these are hospitalized patients, especially in the ICU, like John, you said, after being on a long flight, um, after being in a long car ride, or just staying in your bed all day. <laughs> Sounds like I'm starting just to like describe <laughs> my own so. life. <laughs> But, you know, I have to say, I feel like sometimes when I'm like on a long car ride or a plane, I'm just like, all right, like, got to move those legs a little bit. Do a little bit of like a toe. Like, Do your toe crunch. curls. Yeah. Get your reps in. <laughs> toe day. That's my favorite day. Toe day. Best day. <laughs> I make my wife get up every 10 minutes on a flight now. I just like get up and, 10 and minutes? march up and down the aisle. That must be fun for the people in the aisle when you have the window seat, right? That's right. <laughs> See, you're they getting them up. That's right. They don't appreciate it. But... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're really, John is saving lives. <laughs> yeah, just point at them and say, I'm saving you. <laughs> and as Derek was saying, I mean, this is a very important problem with hospitalized patients. And we kind of take a all hands on deck approach in terms of preventing DVTs. Um, so like we said, we do these compression devices. But a lot of patients, the patients who are in these highest risk categories, are put on systemic anticoagulation or systemic blood thinners to prevent clot formation, which is not a trivial treatment. So this paper, as we're saying, sort of opens the door for better prevention strategies rather than these sort of um, inefficient approaches like the compression devices and then these really costly approaches like systemic blood thinners. So John, now that you've you know, spill the tea, these compression devices don't work. I want to know what you're going to do about it. <laughs> it's a leading question. <laughs> He's just going to be like, hey, they don't work, and then just walk away <laughs> and deal with it. This is what he's doing. He's, you know, getting people up on the plane. He takes a flight every single day and then yells, everyone stand up and move your legs. I did do that until an air marshal took me down and <laughs> tasered me. So. <laughs> Ever since the tasering, we decided we need to go in a different direction. Okay, okay. And we, uh, you know, Mark Kahn and myself, we started a company to make a device to 
hopefully provide better protection um, and actually develop a mechanical therapy that people can wear in the hospital to recreate this active looking flow um, through kind of with a different mechanism of action that we designed in doing ultrasound studies to particularly emphasize this active flow pattern um, and kind of designing to that endpoint. So we hopefully we'll uh, get this into the clinic in the next couple of years and demonstrate improved efficacy and, and hopefully give clinicians more options in how to prevent these clots. Very cool. I was one of the uh, foot models for John uh, for the device. That's right. we, had, we had a little photo shoot in one of the conference rooms. In fact, you're you're usually the one that I show because your socks are so interesting. <laughs> They're <laughs> purple and orange striped. People would pay a lot of money for those pictures. Yeah. Oh my God, Ellen. <laughs> We've got a good pivot strategy there. Yeah. In case the device doesn't work, we just sell foot pictures. It's always good to have a backup plan. <laughs> you know, yeah, my, now my alternative career would be foot model or the more niche foot fetish model. <laughs> more niche, but more lucrative. So. Yes, of course. That's where the, that's where the big money's at. <laughs> So to wrap up, we like to ask all of our guests um, their favorite part about doing science. So would you like to share yours? Or what was your favorite part of yeah, doing science now that right. you've left and decided to become a business executive? <laughs> um, my favorite part about doing science was, um, I think the, the 20 minutes or maybe a full day where you knew something about biology that no one else knew. Uh, that was a fun experience. You know, looking through the microscope and seeing something cool happen in real time was very exciting. Um, it wasn't always worth the slog that it took to get there. <laughs> the hundred mice you had to sacrifice or, you know, the hours spent uh, doing very boring stuff to get there, uh, you know, in the end was not enough for me. But, I, you know, I certainly enjoyed research in the lab and, and doing science. It's very fun. And we need to actually credit John with some of the questions we've asked that we're also going to ask John now. Um, because when we started this, we ran a lot of our ideas past John because he's like a super successful CEO who knows like yes. his way around like business and yeah. whatever. <laughs> so John. That's exactly how I put it on my resume. <laughs> business and whatever. Pretty good at it. Knows his way around business or whatever. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> expertise. So, John, what is your worst lab injury ever? Oh, my worst lab injury ever. I was I, I, I. It may have done some long-lasting damage, but it was mostly temporary. In that I dyed my face blue. I was staining a protein gel with kumasi dye, which is this nasty mixture of dye and methanol and all kinds of disgusting stuff. Not fun. <laughs> and. Uh, a beaker fell off of a drying rack and hit my hand holding the bottle of Kumasi Blue and it basically went down and splashed back into my face. Uh. And, you know, it's methanol, all this disgusting stuff. It goes all over the floor, all over the wall. Everything's instantly stained. And I don't go to the eye wash. I just kind of run away. <laughs> go to the bathroom. And then I just went home. This is when I was an undergraduate. just started. So I, this was not recent. <laughs> Statue of limitations. <laughs> It's long past. So I just leave and I don't come back. And then the next day I'm, I'm back in the lab and our PI of the lab comes in. She's very upset because someone made a giant mess, stained a door and like all these cabinets and the university wants her to pay for it to be for them to be replaced. And who did this? And she's looking around the room and my face is still pretty blue. <laughs> 
at this point. So I just kind of like tried to cover it or like pretend I was cold or something. <laughs> Oh, it's hypothermia. <laughs> he was actually wearing a ski mask. Yeah. And he was either skiing, robbing a bank, or he spilled kumasi all over his face. Yeah. So then again, I just ran away, and I don't think I came back until my face had kind of come back to a normal a normal color, and I could avoid detection. So is starting your own company and becoming a CEO, like the adult version of running away from science after you spilled kumasi on yourself? That's right. <laughs> And finally, do you have any advice for any um, scientists who would like to develop their own device or company? Yeah, I, you know, I think there's a growing number of mechanisms for people to kind of start to explore their own ideas. I mean, you know, a lot of universities are developing these innovation programs and NIH and NSS have money to kind of support these projects. So, you know, my advice would be to just start pushing um, and go for it because, if it works, it's fun, and you can kind of run with it for a little while, uh, and you know, really plan for it to be successful. Because once you get that money in, you know, you have to start actually doing stuff. So I think that we had some benefits from kind of being overconfident and assuming everything would work out. So when we had some success, uh, we were kind of ready for it. So, but yeah, I'm always encouraging everyone in the lab to quit science and go try and do something entrepreneurial. Start a podcast full time. Right. I volunteer as tribute. I will say I really admire John. I think a lot of people, a lot of scientists especially, do science, they do research. And it's cool because you find out a lot of things that you just never knew, but a lot of it that potentially could have a lot of impact, whether you think of it then or it's other research that comes out of it down the line never really makes it to the clinic. Like it never really has like a big impact on patients the way it could. I think it's really cool here that John was able to do that. Yeah. We'll impact at least 16 people. <laughs> we'll see. The, fo- a... the foot picks will have a much broader impact. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really fun and we learned a lot. Thanks very much for having me. 